Today on Categorical Imperative, we are going to be starting a new series examining the great debate that took place between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists over the proposed Constitution that came out of the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. So this is going to be Volume 1 of The Great Debate and the Struggle for Ratification. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Locking Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. And if you are new to the program, I would especially like to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, I recently did a series of videos in which I looked at judicial review through the perspective of two founders who saw the concept entirely differently. Uh, Publius, who is arguably, uh, at least to us today, the most persuasive of the Federalists, and Brutus, who has consistently been, both in his time and in our own, I would argue, the most influential and powerful advocate of the dangers of uh, the new proposed Constitution uh, especially in regards to the role of the federal judiciary. Now, I got some really good feedback uh, from people who said they really liked those episodes and that they wanted uh, or they'd be interested in seeing more episodes like that in the future. So today is going to be the start of a new feature. Uh, I'm going to be doing this kind of like I do my Today in Supreme Court History series, where I just from time to time, when the mood strikes me, I will be doing a video along these lines. So, September 17th, 1787. On this day, the Philadelphia Convention had finished drafting the instrument that would become our Constitution. The Anti-Federalists wasted no time in denouncing the document. Now, most Anti-Federalists chose to write under pseudonyms, uh, in their initial publication, uh, these included people who wrote under names such as Cato, which was the pen name for, I believe to be the pen name for New York's George Clinton, Sentinel, who is believed to be George Bryan, and the Federal Farmer, who is historically identified as Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, uh, and then, as I mentioned before, Brutus, who is most likely Robert Yates from New York. Now, this along with a few other people, such as Patrick Henry and George Mason, who were very well-known anti-federalists, who simply wrote under their own name. Now, the first standalone counterattack to the anti-federalists took place in Philadelphia on October 6th, when James Wilson, who had been a delegate to the Philadelphia Convention, addressed a very large crowd of people outside of the state house where the Constitution had been signed just three weeks earlier. Uh, and, in fact, he really didn't spend so much time explaining or elucidating, but immediately moved to strike back at many of the arguments that were being made against the proposed Constitution. 
Now, during this time frame between the publication of the new constitution around September 17th and October 6th, when James Wilson gave this speech, if you go back and you look through the records, I can really find six primary objections to the constitution that were commonly held and clearly identifiable among the anti-federalists. First was that the Constitution did not create a reformed federal government to replace the Articles of Confederation, but a whole new monstrosity of a single consolidated government. Second, the size of the United States would force this new consolidated government to rule with a heavy hand because its broad oversight responsibilities would require much more power. Third, the powers conferred on this new consolidated government were expressed in such vague terms, uh, and here the trade clause and the necessary and proper clause especially were pointed out uh, as the main villains, that no one could find a ground on which to stand against them. Now fourth, the President and the Senate had too much power and were seen as almost the seeds of a new monarchy. Fifth, the new Congress would not have the power to maintain uh, a professional army. And sixth, there was no Bill of Rights. Now, in response to this, there's no Bill of Rights to the Constitution? Well, no, said James Wilson, and there shouldn't be. The Constitution only gave the federal government limited and enumerated powers and restrictions on fundamental rights. And especially those that were already guaranteed by the state Constitution were not generally included in the powers that they bothered to confer on the federal government. So today we will be taking a look at this first great defense of the Constitution that was made by James Wilson that quickly became one of the most well-known and most influential defenses of the Constitution during the whole of that ratification period between roughly September 1787 and July of 1788, when the Constitution was finally ratified by nine of the 13 states, making it the supreme law of the land. Now, in that contemporaneous period, James Wilson's speech of October 6th was transcribed, published, and disseminated in newspapers, leaflets, and broadsides all across the 13 states. You can really sort of take this speech that we'll be going through today as being akin in its own time to what the Federalist Papers have become to us in our time, that it, it is so well-known and so influential that if you only knew of one pro-Constitution argument from a Federalist, you can pretty much guarantee it was this speech that we will be reading by James Wilson. Now, after we get done with that, we will be looking at a few of the very best anti-Federalist responses written specifically as counter-arguments against the arguments set forth by James Wilson. So we will be looking at uh, anti-Federalist writings from Sentinel, 
Cincinnatus, a Democratic Federalist, uh, someone who disidentified himself as, quote, an officer of the late Continental Army. And then an additional uh, sort of bonus rebuttal uh, where we'll be looking at someone who wrote a response to the response from the officer of a late Continental Army. So let's get started here with James Wilson's speech in just a moment. So he begins, Mr. Chairman and fellow citizens, having received the honor of an appointment to represent you in the late convention, it is perhaps my duty to comply with the request of many gentlemen whose characters and judgments I sincerely respect and who have urged that this would be a proper occasion to lay before you any information which will serve to explain and elucidate the principles of the arrangements of the Constitution that has been submitted to the consideration of the United States. It will be proper to mark the leading discrimination between the states' constitutions and the Constitution of the United States. When the people established the powers of legislation under their separate governments, they invested their representatives with every right and authority which they did not in explicit terms reserve. And therefore, upon every question respecting the jurisdiction of the Houses of Assembly, if the frame of government is silent, the jurisdiction is efficient and complete. But in delegating federal powers, another criterion was necessarily introduced, and the congressional power is to be collected not from tacit implication, but from positive grant expressed in the instrument of the Union. Hence, it is evidence that in the former, everything which is not reserved is given, but in the latter, the reverse of the proposition prevails, prevails and everything which is not given is reserved. Now, this distinction being recognized will furnish an answer to those who think the omission of a Bill of Rights a defect in the proposed Constitution, for it would have been superfluous and absurd to have stipulated with a federal body of our own creation, that we should enjoy those privileges of which we are not divested, either by the intention or the act that brought the body into existence. For instance, liberty of the press, which has been a copious source of declamation and opposition. What control can proceed from the federal government to shackle or destroy that sacred palladium of national freedom? If, indeed, a power similar to that which has been granted for the regulation of commerce has been granted to regulate literary publications, it would have been as necessary to stipulate that the liberty of the press should be preserved inviolate, at the least, should be in general operation. Now, with respect, likewise, to the particular district of Ten Miles, which is to be made the seat of the federal government, it will undoubtedly be proper to observe the salutary precaution that there the legislative power will be exclusively lodged in the President, Senate, and House of Representatives. But this could not be an object with the Convention, for it must naturally depend upon a future compact to which the citizens immediately interested will and ought to be parties to and there is no reason to suspect that so popular a privilege 
will, in that case, be neglected. In truth, then, the proposed system possesses no influence whatever upon the press, and it would have been merely nugatory to have introduced a formal declaration upon the subject, nay, that very declaration might have been construed to imply that some degree of power was given, since we undertook to define its extent. Another objection that has been fabricated against the new constitution is expressed in this disingenuous form, that the trial by jury is abolished in civil cases. I must be excused, my fellow citizens, if upon this point I take advantage of my professional experience to detect the futility of the assertion. Let it be remembered, then, that the business of the Federal Convention was not local, but general, not limited to the views and establishments of a single state, but co-extensive with the continent, and comprehending the views and establishment of thirteen independent sovereignties when, therefore, this subject was in discussion, we were involved in difficulties which pressed on all sides, and no precedent could be set to be discovered to direct our course. Now, the convention found the task too difficult for them, and they left the business as it stands in the fullest confidence that no danger could possibly ensue since the proceeding of the Supreme Court are to be regulated by the Congress, which is a faithful representation of the people. And the oppression of government is effectually barred by declaring that in all criminal cases, trial by jury shall be preserved. Now this Constitution, it has been further urged, is of a pernicious tendency because it tolerates a standing army in the time of peace. This has always been a topic of popular declamation. And yet, I do not know a nation in the world which has not found it necessary and useful to maintain the appearance of strength in a season of the most profound tranquility. But, what would our national situation be were it otherwise? Every principle of policy must be subverted and the government must declare war before they are even prepared to carry it on. Whatever may be the provocation, however important the object in view, and however necessary dispatch and secrecy may be, still, the declaration must precede the preparation, and the enemy will be informed of your intention not only before you are equipped for an attack, but before you are even fortified for a defense. The consequence is too obvious to require any further delineation. Perhaps there was never a charge made with less reason than that which predicts the institution of a baneful aristocracy in the Federal Senate. In its character, it can affect no purpose without the cooperation of the House of Representatives, and its executive character can only be accomplished with concurrence of the President. 
The next accusation I shall consider is that which represents the federal constitution as not only calculated but designedly framed to reduce the state governments to mere corporations and eventually to annihilate them. Those who have employed the term corporation upon this occasion are perhaps not aware of its extent. In common parlance, indeed, it is generally applied to a petty association for the ease and convenience of a few individuals, but in an enlarged sense, it will comprehend the government of Pennsylvania, the existing union of the states, and even the projected system is nothing more than a formal act of incorporation. But upon what presence can it be alleged that it was designed to annihilate the state government? For I will undertake to prove that upon their existence depends the existence of a federal plan. For this purpose, permit me to call your attention to the manner in which the President, Senate, and House of Representatives are proposed to be appointed. The President is to be chosen by electors nominated in such manner as the legislature of each state may direct. So, if there is no legislature, there can be no electors, and consequently the office of president cannot be supplied. The Senate is to be composed of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislature, and therefore, if there is no legislature, there can be no Senate. The House of Representatives is to be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states, and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature unless, therefore, there is a state legislature that qualification cannot be ascertained and the popular branch of the federal constitution must be extinct. From this view, then, it is evidently absurd to suppose that the annihilation of the separate governments will result from their union. After all, my fellow citizens, it is neither extraordinary or unexpected that the Constitution offered to your consideration should meet with opposition. It is the nature of man to pursue his own interest in preference to the public good, and I do not mean to make any personal reflection when I add that it is in the interest of a very numerous powerful and respectable body to counteract and destroy the excellent work produced by the late convention. All the officers of government and all the appointments for the administration of justice and the collection of the public revenue, which are transferred from the individuals to the aggregate sovereignty of the new states, will necessarily turn the stream of influence and emolument into a new channel. Every person, therefore, who enjoys or expects to enjoy a place of profit under the present establishment will object to the proposed innovation. Not in truth because it is injurious to the liberties of his country, but because it affects his schemes of wealth and consequence. And I will confess indeed that I am not a blind admirer of this plan of government, and that there are parts of it which, if my wish had prevailed, would certainly have been altered. But, 
when I reflect how widely men differ in their opinions and that every man, and this observation applies likewise to every state, has an equal pretension to assert his own, I am satisfied that anything nearer to perfection could not have been accomplished. If there are errors, it should be remembered that the seeds of reformation are sown in the work itself, and the concurrence of two-thirds of the Congress may at any time introduce alterations and amendments. Regarding it then, in every point of view, with a candid and disinterested mind, I am bold to assert that it is the best form of government which has ever been offered to the world. All right, the following is a reply to part of the speech that you just heard by James Wilson. This comes from a gentleman writing under the pen name A Democratic Federalist, and this appeared October 17th, 1787, uh, and the title of the piece is What Shelter from Arbitrary Power? He begins, The arguments of the Honorable Mr. Wilson expressed in the speech he made at the State House on the Saturday preceding the general election as stated in the Pennsylvania Herald, although extremely ingenious, and the best that could be adduced in support of so bad a cause is yet extremely futile and will not stand the test of investigation. In the first place, Mr. Wilson pretends to point out a leading discrimination between the state constitution and the constitution of the United States. In the former, he says, every power which is not reserved is given, and in the latter, Every power which is not given is reserved. And this may furnish an answer, he adds, to those who object that a Bill of Rights has not been introduced in the proposed federal constitution. If this doctrine is true, and since it is the only security that we are to have for our natural rights, it ought to at least have been clearly expressed in the plan of government. In the second section, of the present Articles of Confederation, it says, quote, Each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power delegated, jurisdiction, and right, which is not by this Confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled, end quote. Now this declaration, for what purpose I know not, is entirely omitted in the proposed Constitution. It is also said in the second section, and the third article of the federal plan, quote, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, end quote. It is very clear that under this clause, the Tribunal of the United States may claim a right to the cognizance of all offenses against the general government, and libels will not probably be excluded. Nay, those offenses may be by them construed or by law declared misprison of 
treason, an offense which comes literally under their express jurisdiction. Where is then the safety of our boasted liberty of the press? And in case of a conflict of jurisdictions between the courts of the United States and those of the several commonwealths, is it not easy to foresee which of the two will obtain the advantage? Under the enormous power of the new confederation, which extends to the individuals as well as to the states of America, a thousand means may be devised to destroy effectually the liberty of the press, and there is no knowing what corrupt and wicked judges may do in process of time when they are not restrained by express laws. The case of John Peter Zenger of New York ought still to be present in our minds to convince us how displeasing the liberty of the press is to men in high power. At any rate, I lay it down as a general rule that wherever the powers of a government clearly extend to the lives, the persons, and the properties of the subject, all their rights ought to be clearly and expressly defined otherwise they have a poor security for their liberties. The second and more, uh, more important objection to the federal plan, which Mr. Wilson pretends to be made in a disingenuous form, is the entire abolition of the trial by jury in civil cases. It seems to me that Mr. Wilson's pretended answer is much more disingenuous than the objection itself, which I maintain to be strictly founded in fact. He said, quote, that the case is open to trial by jury in the different states, it is therefore impracticable to have made a general rule, end quote. This answer is extremely futile because a reference might easily have been made to the common law of England, which obtains through every state and case in maritime and civil law court that course would have... Fuck, I fucked up. God damn it. The second and most important objection to the federal plan, which, which Mr. Wilson pretends to be made in a disingenuous form, is the entire abolition of a trial by jury in civil cases. It seems to me that Mr. Wilson's pretended answer is much more disingenuous than the objection itself, which I maintain to be strictly founded in fact. He says that the case is open to a trial by jury differing in the different states. It was therefore impracticable to have been made a general rule. The answer is extremely futile because a reference might easily have been made to the common law of England, which obtains through every state and cases in the maritime and civil law courts would, of course, have been accepted. It must also directly contradict Mr. Wilson when he asserts that there is no trial by jury in the Court of Chancery. It cannot be unknown to a man of his high professional learning that whenever a difference arises in the matter of fact in the courts of equity in America or England, the fact is sent down the courts of common law to be tried by a jury. And it is what a lawyer calls a feigned issue. This method will be impracticable 
under the proposed form of federal jurisdiction for the United States. But setting aside the equivocal answers of Mr. Wilson, I have in my power to prove that under the proposed federal constitution, the trial of fact in civil cases by a jury of the vicinage is entirely and effectually abolished and will be absolutely impracticable. Now I wish the learned gentleman had explained to us what is meant by the appellate jurisdiction to law in fact which is vested in the Superior Court of the United States. As he has not thought proper to do it, I shall endeavor to explain it to my fellow citizens, regretting at the same time it had not been done by a man whose abilities are so much more superior to mine. The word appeal, if I understand it right, in its proper legal signification includes the fact as well as the law, and precludes every idea of a trial by jury. It is a word of foreign growth and is only known in England and America in those courts which are governed by the civil or ecclesiastical law of the Romans. Those courts have always been considered in England as a grievance and have all been established by the usurpation of the ecclesiastical over the civil power. It is well known that the courts of chancery in England were formerly entirely in the hand of the ecclesiastics, who took advantage of the strict forms of the common law to introduce a foreign mode of jurisprudence under the specious name of equity. Pennsylvania, the freest of the American states, has wisely rejected this establishment and knows not even the name of a court of chancery, and, in fact, there cannot be anything more absurd than a distinction between law and equity. It might perhaps have suited those barbarous times when the laws of England, like almost every other silence, were perplexed with quibbles and Aristotelian distinctions. But it would be shameful to keep it up in these more enlightened days. At any rate, it seems to me that there is much more equity in a trial by jury than in an appellate jurisdiction from the fact. An appeal, therefore, is a thing unknown to the common law. Instead of an appeal from facts, it admits of a second or even third trial by different juries, and mistakes in points of law are rectified by superior courts in the form of a writ of error and to a mere common lawyer, unskilled in the forms of the civil law courts, the words appeal from fact and law are mere nonsense and unintelligible absurdity. But even supposing that the Superior Court of the United States had the authority to try facts by juries of the vicinage, it would be impossible for them to carry it into execution. It is well known that the Supreme Court of the different states at stated times in every year go around the different counties of their respected states and try issues of fact, which is called riding the circuit. Now, how is it possible that the Supreme Continental Court, which we will suppose to consist of at most five or six judges, 
can travel at least twice in every year through the different counties of America from New Hampshire to Kentucky and from Kentucky to Georgia and to try the facts by juries of the vicinage. Common sense will not admit of such a supposition. I am therefore right in my assertion that trial by jury in civil cases is, by the proposed Constitution, entirely done away and effectually abolished. Let us now attend to the consequences of the enormous innovation and daring encroachment on the liberties of the citizens. Setting aside the oppression, injustice, and partiality that may take place in a trial of question of property between man and man, we will attend to one single case which is well worth our consideration. Let us remember that all cases arising under the new constitution and all matters between citizens of different states are to be submitted to the new jurisdiction. Suppose, therefore, that the military officers of Congress, by a wanton abuse of power, imprison the free citizens of America. Suppose the excise or revenue officers, as we find in Clayton's reports on page 44 from Ward's case, that a constable having a warrant to search for stolen goods pulled down the clothes of a bed in which there was a woman and searched under her shirt. Suppose, I say, that they commit similar or greater indignities in such cases, a trial by jury would be our safest recourse. Heavy damages would at once punish the offender and deter others from committing the same. But what satisfaction can we expect from a lordly court of justice, always ready to protect the officers of government against the weak and helpless citizens, and who will perhaps sit at a distance of many hundreds of miles from the place where the outrage was committed? What refuge we then have to shelter us from the iron hand of arbitrary power? My fellow citizens, think of this while there is yet time, and never consent to part with the glorious privilege of a trial by jury, but with your lives. All right, next we will be taking a look at a letter. This is Sentinel's second letter. This was originally published as a reply to James Wilson's speech. It was published on October 24th of 1787. He begins, Friends, Countrymen and fellow citizens, as long as the liberty of the press continues unviolated and the people have the right of expressing and publishing their sentiments upon every public measure, it is next to impossible to enslave a free nation. This state of society must be very corrupt and base indeed when the people in possession of such a monitor as the press can be induced to exchange the heaven-born blessings of liberty for the galling chains of despotism. Men of an inspiring and tyrannical disposition, sensible of this truth, have ever been in missile to the press, and have considered the shackling of it as the first step towards the accomplishment of their hateful domination and the entire suppression of all liberty of public discussion as necessary to its support. 
or even a standing army, that grand engine of oppression, if it were as numerous as the abilities of any nation could maintain, would not be equal to the purposes of despotism over an enlightened peoples. The abolition of that grand palladium of freedom, the liberty of the press, in the proposed plan of government, and the conduct of its authors and patrons, is a striking exemplification of these observations. The reason assigned to the omission of a bill of rights securing the liberty of the press and other invaluable personal rights is an insult to the understanding of the people. Mr. Wilson has recourse to the most flimsy sophistry in his attempt to refute the charge that their new plan of government will supersede and render powerless the state governments. He says that the existence of the proposed federal plan depends on the existence of the state governments as who are to nominate the electors who choose the President of the United States, and that hence all fears of the several states being melted down into one empire are groundless and imaginary. But who is so dull has not to comprehend that the semblance and forms of the ancient establishment may remain after the reality is gone. Augustus, by the aid of a great army, assumed despotic power, and notwithstanding this, we find, even under Tiberius, Caligula, and Nero, princes who disgraced human nature by their excesses, and the shadows of ancient constitutions held up to amuse the people. The Senate sat as formerly consuls, tribunes of the people, censors, and other officers were annually chosen as before, and the forms of republican government continued, yet this was in appearance only. Even Senatus Consultum was dictated by him or his ministers, and every Roman found himself constrained to submit in all things to the despot. The laws of Congress are to be the supreme law of the land. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding and consequently would be paramount to all state authorities. The lust of power is so universal that a speculative, unascertained rule of construction would be a poor security for the liberties of a people. Such a body as the intended Congress, unless particularly inhibited and restrained, must grasp at omnipotence, and before long swallow up the legislative, the executive, and the judicial powers of the several states. The jurisdiction of the federal courts goes likewise to the laws to be created by treaties made by the President and Senate, which is a species of legislation with other nations. To all cases affecting foreign ministers and consuls to controversies wherein the United States shall be a party to controversy between citizens of different states, as when an inhabitant of New York has a demand on the inhabitant of New Jersey. This last is a very invidious jurisdiction, implying an improper distrust of the impartiality and justice of the tribunals of the state. 
It will include all legal debates between foreigners in Britain or elsewhere and the people of this country. This jurisdiction also goes to controversies between any state and its citizens which, though probably not intended, may hereafter be set up as a ground to divest the states, severally, of the trials of criminals inasmuch as every charge of felony or misdemeanor is a controversy between a state and a citizen of the same. That is to say, the state is plaintiff and the party accused is defendant in the prosecution. In all doubts about jurisprudence, as was observed before, the paramount courts of Congress will decide and the judges of the state, being sub gravior legae, under this paramount law, must acquiesce. From the foregoing illustration of the powers proposed to be devolved to Congress, it is evidence that the general government would necessarily annihilate the particular governments and that the security of the personal rights of the people by the state constitutions is superseded and destroyed. Hence results the necessity of such security being provided by a Bill of Rights to be inserted into the new plan of federal government. What excuse can we then make for the omission of this grand palladium? this barrier between liberty and oppression. For universal experience demonstrates the necessity of the most express declarations and restrictions to protect the rights and liberties of mankind from the silent, powerful, and ever-active conspiracy of those who govern. My fellow citizens, such false Detestable patriots in every nation have led their blind, confiding country, shouting their applause into the jaws of despotism and ruin. May be wisdom protecting the liberties of all mankind from the silent and powerful be ever active conspiracy of those who govern. From the foregoing illustration of the powers proposed to be uh, dissolved to Congress, it is evidence that the general government would necessarily annihilate the particular government and that the security of the personal rights of the people by the state constitutions is superseded and destroyed. Hence, results the necessity of such security being provided by a Bill of Rights to be inserted to the new plan of federal government. What excuse can we then make for the omission of this grand palladium, this barrier between liberty and oppression? For universal experience demonstrates the necessity of the most express declarations and restrictions to protect the rights and liberties of mankind from the silent, powerful, and ever-active conspiracy of those who govern. My fellow citizens, such false, detestable patriots in every nation have led their blind, confiding country shouting their applauses into the jaws of despotism and ruin. May the wisdom and virtue of the people of America save them from this usual fate of nations.
Now here, Sentinel's response to James Wilson's speech really captures the extent of distrust of the then newly proposed government in the Constitution. So really, this distrust is best captured in Sentinel's statement that those who govern are continually engaged in a, quote, silent and powerful conspiracy to deprive the people of their rights and liberties. Sentinels didn't trust hones in on more specific elements of the Constitution, however. He observed that the freedom of the press must be implemented through a Bill of Rights and other rights must be included. Now, clearly here, Sentinel also concluded that through comparison to ancient Rome, that the states could easily be rendered superfluous to the new proposed constitution. Now, I find this personally to be a curious comparison, however. Uh, It must be noted that ancient Rome on some level did embrace tyranny and despotism in a way that Americans may not realize. For example, it was not uncommon in the Roman Republic for a dictator to assume power for years at a time, to weather a crisis, and then to relinquish that dictatorship after the crisis had subsided. The nobles' relinquishment of that dictatorial power is what wrote Cincinnatus into history. Now, Americans' only real engagement with such an absolute power up until this point would have been the British crown, which had notable differences from ancient Rome and from the American colonies. Now, regardless, Sentinel's analysis of James Wilson's speech does still deserve the attention I am trying to give it here for another reason. No matter what assurances are given and accommodations made, there will always be some discontent And this is what I like to point out to you here by reading this, is that unanimity, particularly in formulating the structure of a government, is simply not a realistic possibility. So, Sentinel's distrust and insistence in changing the Constitution, however, really captures the spirit that led to the adoption of the Bill of Rights and to the expanding of the protections for the people And so, for that much, I think that we as Americans can be thankful to people like Cincinnatus, though he be uh, a bit alarmist. And next, we will be moving on to a speech by the man who uh, takes the pen name of that great uh, old Roman Republic general, Cincinnatus. All right, the following is an excerpt from a reply, a reply to James Wilson uh, from Cincinnatus. This is uh, what is known in the Anti-Federalist Papers as Cincinnatus's first essay. It was originally released in the New York Journal on November 1st of 1787. He begins by saying, Your first attempt is to apologize for so very obvious a defect as the omission of a declaration of rights. This apology consists in a very ingenious discovery that in the state constitutions, whatever is not reserved is given. But in the congressional constitution, whatever is not given is reserved. 
This has more the quaintness of a conundrum than the dignity of an argument. The conventions that made the state and the general constitution sprang from the same source. They were delegated for the same purpose. That is, for framing rules by which we should be governed and ascertaining those powers which it was necessary to vest in our rulers. Where then is this distinction to be found, but in your assumption? It is not in the powers given to the members of the convention. No. It is not in the Constitution, not a word of it. And yet, on this play of words, this dictum of yours, this distinction without a difference, you would persuade the rest of us our most essential rights can be trusted. I trust, however, that the good sense of the free people cannot be so easily imposed on by professional figments. The Confederation in its very outset declares that what is not expressly given is reserved. This Constitution makes no such reservation. The presumption, therefore, is that the framers of the proposed Constitution did not mean to subject it to the same exception. But you choose to shrew our fellow citizens nothing but what would flatter and mislead them. You exhibited that by a rush light only which, to dissipate its darkness, require the full force of the meridian sun. When the people are fully apprised of your chains, you have prepared for them. If they choose to put them on, you have nothing to answer for. If they choose to be tenants at the will of their liberties by the new constitution instead of having their freehold in them secured by a declaration of rights, I can only lament it. There was a time when our fellow citizens were told, in the words of the great Sir Edward Cook, for a man to be a tenant at will of his liberty, I can never agree to it. Though a despot may not act tyrannically, yet it is dreadful to think that if he will, he may. Perhaps you may also remember, sir, that our fellow citizens were warned against those smooth words with which the most dreadful designs may be glossed over. You have given us a lively comment on your own text. You have vanished over the iron trap that is prepared and baited with some illustrious names to catch the liberties of the people. Now, Cincinnatus is uh, generally held to be an anti-federalist uh, named Arthur Lee, who was related to the famous Lees of Virginia, Richard Henry Lee, Light Horse Harry Lee. He would have been an ancestor of Robert E. Lee. Um, and here, in his response to James Wilson's speech, he captures the spirit that really underlies what would become the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. If you're not familiar, the Ninth Amendment states, quote, The enumeration in this Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The Tenth Amendment states, quote, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution 
nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. These amendments were intended to protect the people and the states against tyranny that may arise on the federal level. In making his argument against the proposed Constitution, Lee looks to various state constitutions and the spirit of the state constitutions to say that there must be express reservations of rights and that James Wilson's words, or any other Federalist words for that matter, should not be sufficient to satisfy concerns about the Constitution's meaning. Now, this insistence was rooted in the prevention of tyranny. This was a very common theme among the Anti-Federalists and among Americans generally. However, Lee's skepticism and lack of trust is quite clear as he invokes Sir Edward Cook to imply that James Wilson's smooth words masked an evil that must be revealed. So, here, Lee's eloquent and illustrious language undoubtedly gave credibility to the Anti-Federalists and helped to move Americans toward the adoption of what would become the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments. All right, next up we will be looking at another response to James Wilson. This one come, coming from someone under the pen name of an officer of the late Continental Army. All right, the following is from an author who uses the pen name an officer of the late Continental Army. This was originally published in the Independent Gazetteer, from in Philadelphia on November 6, 1787. Uh, it was entitled, A Set of Aspiring Despots Who Would Make Us Slaves. And this was published following an excerpt from Wilson's speech. So, an officer of the late Continental Army begins, That of the Senate is so small, that it renders its extensive powers extremely dangerous. It is to consist of only 26 members, two-thirds of whom must concur to conclude any treaty of alliance with foreign powers. Now we will suppose that five of them are absent, sick, dead, unable to attend, 21 will remain, and eight of these, one-third and one over, may prevent the conclusion of any treaty, even the most favorable to America. Here we will find a fine field for the intrigues and even the bribery and the corruption known to European powers. Rotation, that noble prerogative of liberty, is entirely excluded from the new system of government, and great men may and probably will be continued in office during their lives. Annual elections will be abolished, and the people are not to reassume their rights until the expiration of either two, four, or as many as six years. Now then, my fellow citizens, my brethren and my friends, if the sacred flame of liberty be not extinguished in your breast. If you have any regard for the happiness of yourselves, 
and your posterity, let me entreat you, earnestly entreat you, by all that is dear and sacred to free men, to consider well before you take this awful step, which may involve in its consequences the ruin of millions yet unborn. You are on the brink you are on the brink of a dreadful precipice. In the name, therefore, of holy liberty, for which I have fought and for which we have all suffered, I call upon you to make a solemn pause before you proceed. One step more, and perhaps the scene of freedom is closed forever in America. Let not a set of aspiring despots Make us slaves, and tell us tis our charter. Wrest from you those invaluable blessings for which the most illustrious sons of America have bled and have died. But exert yourself, like men, like freemen, and like Americans, to transmit unimpaired to your latest posterity those rights and liberties which have ever been so dear to you, and which it is yet your power to preserve. Now, this anti-federalist writing is perhaps most likely authored by William Finley, uh, and he touches on two criticisms of the proposed Constitution that I really want to take a second to take note of here the exclusivity of the Senate, and the nature of elections in America. Now first, the Senate was specifically designed to be a more aristocratic political body than any other created in the Constitution. And the author, perhaps fundamentally disagreeing with it being such an aristocratic body, seemed to only see the dangers of having a few members. The anti-federalist principles would not permit the creation of such a blatantly elite political body, inevitably focusing governmental power in one place. Nonetheless, the Senate would remain unchanged from when the author critiqued it. Second, the nature of elections really, especially clearly, troubled this anti-federalist author, and all of the Anti-Federalists in general. This was really in line with many of the Anti-Federalists who called for annual elections of all elected offices. There, there was a common slogan you would hear back then all the time, where annual elections end, tyranny begins. Now, perhaps this is overly idealistic, given the length of political campaigns in our modern times, but further, our author does point out that there is no rotation of political offices mandated in the Constitution. Now, of course, this would change in the 20th century for the president with the adoption of the 22nd Constitution of the 22nd Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. And to finish his remarks, the author invokes his military service in the Revolutionary War. He begs the reader to not relinquish his or her freedom that was so fiercely fought for in the war as the Constitution would inevitably push America 
into the abyss, and it would be doomed to fail. Now, this rhetoric ought to be remembered. It is tempting to conclude that politics in general has become more negative, and that arguments have become so filled with hyperbole and demagoguery in recent times, but it's clear that these are not new attributes to politics. And I chose this, author, this author's response to James Wilson's speech because I think this best captures that fact. Uh, as it is clear, as long as there are arguments about the course America is charting, which there always must be if America has any hope of survival, there will always be arguments of a both a positive and a negative tone. And next up, we will be taking a look at kind of a little bonus letter here. This is going to be a letter not in reply to James Wilson, but a letter in reply to the one I just read from the officer of a late Continental Army. All right. This is a rebuttal to the last piece we read, uh, a rebuttal to an officer of the late Continental Army. Uh, now, this piece is completely unnamed. The author doesn't even use a pen name. We have no idea who it was. Uh, we just know that the name of the uh, article that they submitted was called Plain Truth and that it was published uh, in November 10th of 1787. Now, following an excerpt that published a part of the reply to the officer of the late Continental Army, this author, uh, this author begins, quote, Congress may provide for calling forth the militia, and may provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining it. But these states, respectively, can only raise it, and they expressly reserve the right of appointment of officers and of training it. Now we know that men, conscientiously scrupulous by sect or profession, are not forced to bear arms in any of the states, a pecuniary compensation being accepted in lieu of it. Whatever may be my sentiments on the present state of this matter is foreign to the point. But it is certain that whatever redress may be wished for or expected can only come from the state legislature, where, and where only, that dispensing power or enforcing power is in the first instance placed in Article 1, Section 8. Thus, I have answered all the objections and supported my answers by fair quotations from the new Constitution, and I particularly desire my readers to examine all the references with accurate attention. If I have mistaken any part, it will, I trust, be bound to an error of judgment, not of will, and I shall thankfully receive any candid instruction on the subject. One quotation more and I have done, is that in all our deliberations on this subject, said none other than George Washington, we keep steadily in our view that which appears to us in greatest interest of every true American, the consolidation of the Union, in which is involved our prosperity, felicity, safety, 
and perhaps even our national existence. This important consideration seriously and deeply impressed on our minds led each state in the convention to be less rigid on points of inferior magnitude than might have been otherwise expected. And thus, the Constitution which we now present is the result of a spirit of amity and of that mutual deference and concession which the peculiarity of our political situation rendered indispensable. Now, I brought up this excerpt here just to touch on two quick key points I want to make. First, the rationale for a national military, and secondly, the underlying spirit for the ratification of the Constitution. Now, the Constitution proposed to create the right for Congress to call forth a militia with the help of the states in raising men from their respective populations. One concern permeating the anti-federalist arguments against the Constitution was that Congress was being empowered to raise a national militia that could impose a tyranny upon the people. The check put into the state hands that they had were to raise the militia and to appoint officers and train the militia. This was to serve as an insurance against a national tyranny. While this may not have quelled the most ardent and vigorous of the anti-federalists, it certainly would assuage concerns of ordinary Americans who know that there was some balance between the state and the federal government. Second, uh, that fantastic quote the author gives from George Washington's speech in favor of ratification of the Constitution, really, Washington's words not only applied to the ratification of the Constitution, but could apply Really, it it should apply, I would argue, to modern America. More often, Americans should remember that decisions should be viewed through the lens of what fosters unity, prosperity, and safety for Americans as a collective. While individual interests must be protected and valued, modern Americans should remember that sacrificing for the greater good can be a valuable tool for prolonging the prosperity and ensuring the betterment of America as long, of course, as it doesn't come at the direct expense of personal liberty. Now we will be finishing up with one more uh, article. This will be another response to James Wilson from a different letter by Cincinnatus. All right. Finally, we have an excerpt from uh, Cincinnati's fifth essay. Uh, this was entitled, Sense, Where is Your Guard? Shame, Where is Your Blush? Now, this was published uh, as an open letter to James Wilson Esquire in New York Journal on the 29th of November, 1787. Cincinnati begins thusly, Sir, in my former observations on your speech to your fellow citizens explanatory and defensive of the new Constitution, 
it has appeared by arguments to my judgment unanswerable that by ratifying the Constitution, as the Convention proposed it, the people will leave the liberty of the press and the trial by jury in civil cases to the mercy of their rulers. That the project is to burden them with enormous taxes in order to raise and maintain armies for the purpose of ambition and arbitrary power, that this power is to be vested in an aristocratic senate who will either be themselves the tyrants or the support of tyranny in a president who will know how to manage them so as to make that body at once the instrument and the shield of his absolute authority. Even the Roman emperors found it necessary to have a senate for this purpose. To compass this object, we have seen powers in every branch of government in violation of all principle and all safety condensed in the aristocratic senate. We have seen the representative or democratic branch weakened exactly in proportion to the strengthening of this aristocratic branch with the cunning power of impeachment that is apparently given to the representatives of the people, but really to the Senate. Since, as they advise, these measures of government, which experience has shown, are the general matters of impunity, the executive officers will be sure of impeachment when they act in conformity to their will. Impeachment will therefore have no terrors but for those who displease or oppose the Senate. Let us suppose that the privy councils who advise the executive government in England were vested with the sole power of trying impeachments. Would any man say that this would not render that body absolute and impeachment to all popular purposes negatory? Now, I shall appeal to those very citizens, Mr. Wilson, whom you are misleading for the propriety of what I am going to reserve. They know that their constitution was democratic, that it secured the powers of government in the body of the people. They have seen an aristocratic party rise up against this constitution, and without the aid of such a senate, but from the mere influence of wealth, however unduly obtained, they have seen this aristocracy, under the supposed title of Republicans, procure such a preference in the legislature as to appoint a majority of the state members in the late convention. Now, had such a Senate, as they have now proposed, been part of your constitution, would the popular part of it have been, in effect, more than a name? Can your fellow citizens then doubt that these men planned this Senate to effect the very purpose which has been the constant object of their endeavors, and that is to overthrow our present constitution? And can you, the citizens of Philadelphia, so soon forget the constitution which you formed, for which you fought, which you have solemnly engaged to defend. Can you soon forget all this as to be willing ministers 
of that ambition which aims only at making you its footstool. The confirmers of that constitution, which give you your aristocratic enemies, their wish must trample your state constitution into the dust. Reflect a moment. Who wish to erect an aristocracy among you, Mr. Wilson and his party? Who were your delegates in framing the Constitution now proposed to you, Mr. Wilson and his party? Who harangues you to smooth its passage to your approbation? Again, Mr. Wilson and his party. Who have you chosen to approve of it in your state convention? Why, Mr. Wilson and his party. All this left to say is, Oh, sense, where is your guard and shame? Where is your blush? Well, that is going to do it for me here today on Categorical Imperatives. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, let me know what you thought uh, down in the comment section below. I do always love to hear from you guys and just get your thoughts on it. Uh, and because, of course, I am a filthy, no-down-low-good capitalist money grubber, I just want to remind you that if you dig what I do here and you want to help play an active role in helping me to develop the channel, to reach more people, and to engage in a richer discussion about law and philosophy, I would greatly appreciate your help, especially over on my new Patreon page, where for just as little as two bucks a month, you can support the show and get all kind of extra goodies from show notes to topic requests and more. Now, if you are able and willing, I would be very grateful for your support. And if you aren't in a place to do that, I still appreciate you coming and spending some of your time with me here all the same. And that goes for whether you are a brand not for a brand new viewer or a longtime subscriber. Now, if you're not able to uh, help the show out that way, that's fine. But if you would uh, consider instead, or, or on top of, ideally, um, just making sure that you are subscribed to the channel to make sure that you always know when new videos come out. And if you would help me grow the channel and just share this episode with one friend who you can think of who you think might find this interesting or helpful or or, or whatever, uh, and, and just send it to them. And if you would help me grow the channel that way, I would be very grateful for your help. And then if you like the show, go ahead and press that thumbs up button. If you hated the show, go ahead and press that thumbs down button, I guess. I don't know. And uh, anyways, yeah, until next time, all that's left to do is say that uh, this has been me, Lockheed Liberal for Categorical Imperatives. And of course, as always, Delenda S. Cartago.